All right. Welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today we're going to be talking about the shoulder. Thank you once again to Dr. John Sweet for reviewing and enhancing the content of this episode. Okay, here we go. I'm an internal medicine resident interested in hemonc, so as you can imagine, orthopedic complaints are not exactly of the greatest interest to me, but I was recently forced to do a presentation on shoulder pain, so I may as well pass on to you what I learned. The first thing to remember about the shoulder is that it consists of two joints, not one. The one that we think of, the ball and socket joint, is the glenohumeral joint, where the glenoid is the socket and the head of the humerus is the ball. But there's also the acromioclavicular joint, where the acromion, which is a process that extends off of the scapula, meets the clavicle. We'll talk about this joint more in a minute. I'll also take a moment to review the rotator cuff, perhaps the most important structure in the shoulder. It's a musculotendinous structure. The muscles whose tendons make up the rotator cuff are the so-called SITS muscles. That's an acronym for supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis. As you're maybe already starting to realize, this podcast is going to feature a lot of anatomy and a lot of physical exam maneuvers, so visual aids such as pictures and diagrams would probably be helpful for much of what I'm going to say. But this is a podcast, so I'll simply let the resourceful listener rely on Google to clarify anything that might be less than totally clear from words alone. So let's continue our brief review of shoulder anatomy. The glenoid, which we said is the socket of the glenohumeral joint, is rimmed with a layer of soft tissue known as the labrum. The labrum molds to the humeral head. Then the whole glenohumeral joint is surrounded by a joint capsule, which is filled with fluid. The joint capsule is made of ligaments. Remember, ligaments connect bone to bone, while tendons connect muscle to bone. So that's a very quick, very basic review of shoulder anatomy. Remember to pause and look at some pictures if anything is unclear. Now I'll simply talk through a series of possible etiologies for shoulder pain. These are the sorts of things you should have in mind if someone comes to see you in clinic or in the ED or wherever it may be complaining of shoulder pain. Rotator cuff disease and subacromial impingement is probably the biggest and most complicated category, so I'll spend some extra time on that. But I'll also run through a few other diagnoses that every clinician should be familiar with, such as frozen shoulder, AC joint disease, biceps tendinopathy, etc. But let's start with the rotator cuff because that's the most complicated. Recall that the function of the rotator cuff is really to stabilize the humeral head. The sits muscles hold the humeral head in place while the deltoid, the latissimus dorsi, the biceps, those are the muscles really moving the arm around. In rotator cuff disease, you can see a spectrum of disease, anything from mild strains of the tendons to full thickness tears. Between these extremes, you can see tendinopathies that over time may calcify, may lead to degeneration of the tendon, and ultimately to a partial or even a full thickness tear. So it's a spectrum of disease. I should add that between the acromion and the humeral head, there's a bursa. Recall that a bursa is a little sac of fluid found in many joints where they help reduce friction, and this subacromial bursa can be compressed in rotator cuff disease. 
So when you talk about rotator cuff disease, there's often a component of so-called subacromial impingement, which refers to compression of both the rotator cuff muscles slash tendons and the subacromial bursa when the arm is raised. We'll talk about all this a little more when we go over the physical exam maneuvers that are used to test for rotator cuff disease. The last point I'll make about rotator cuff disease for now is that on exam, you of course classically see pain over the lateral deltoid, especially at night, exacerbated by overhead activities. If your patient has an actual tear, they may say the joint feels loose. The second etiology I'll much more briefly discuss is adhesive capsulitis, better known perhaps as frozen shoulder. This condition is characterized by progressive contracture of the glenohumeral joint capsule, that fluid-filled space surrounding the joint that we mentioned earlier. This condition is typically seen in middle-aged or older patients. Diabetes is a risk factor. Immobilizing trauma is also a risk factor and can sort of set it off. What you see clinically is stiffness and increasingly limited range of motion. The other joint in the shoulder, the acromioclavicular, or AC joint, may also be the culprit when a patient comes in complaining of shoulder pain. This should be a diagnosis you can figure out because pain is typically well localized to the joint itself, which is a very specific spot that you can palpate on top of the shoulder, and the pain pattern is very characteristic in that patients report pain when reaching across the body, for example when putting on a seatbelt. The underlying condition is usually osteoarthritis, but can also be trauma, rheumatologic disease, or even infection. Biceps tendinopathy is a fourth possible etiology. This one should also be something you can actually distinguish because the pain is typically in the anterior shoulder and may be right in that bicipital groove, which runs up the humeral head and through which the long head of the biceps tendon passes. We're talking about a tendon again, so just as in rotator cuff disease, you can see a spectrum of disease from mild strain to complete tendon rupture. This one has a great and memorable physical exam finding called the Popeye sign. If you do have full rupture of the tendon, the muscle bunches up distally and you see a pointy bunched up bicep, more distal than it should be and asymmetric to the normal arm. So if you see that, that's a pretty slam dunk diagnosis. That's the Popeye sign, and you have biceps tendinopathy. I'll just talk very briefly about a few other possible etiologies of shoulder pain. You can have glenohumeral arthritis, where patients may report pain and a grinding sensation with any movement of the shoulder. You can have tears in the labrum, that layer of fibrocartilaginous tissue I mentioned before that circles the glenoid cavity. Labral tears are associated with younger athletes, especially on exam questions, but older people can get them too. And lastly, you can always have referred pain to the shoulder, for example, from a cervical radiculopathy. So those are some etiologies of shoulder pain. I mentioned rotator cuff disease and subacromial impingement. I mentioned adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder. I mentioned AC joint disease. I mentioned biceps tendinopathy. And I briefly mentioned glenohumeral arthritis, labral tears, and referred pain. I'll continue the episode by quickly going over physical exam maneuvers you can do to try to deduce the correct diagnosis when examining a patient with shoulder pain. Obviously, the first thing to do on physical exam is to inspect. You may see the Popeye sign, as I mentioned, indicative of a full tear of the long head of the biceps. You may also see deformity at the AC joint. You might see an abrupt step-off at the lateral edge of the acromion, which could suggest an anterior dislocation. 
The practiced eye may even be able to detect atrophy of the supraspinatus or infraspinatus compared to the unaffected side in the setting of a chronic rotator cuff tear. Then to continue the physical exam, you of course palpate all around the shoulder, looking for pain in telltale spots. I won't dwell on that except to point out that mild pain upon palpation of the bicipital groove can be normal, so I wouldn't read too much into that if you find it unless it's different from the other side. Then of course you proceed to range of motion. You can start with active by having the patient touch the back of his head and then his lower back, and if you see any limitations you can proceed with passive range of motion testing. Okay, let me finally go through some maneuvers. The maneuvers are probably the most fun part of this otherwise somewhat boring topic. The spurling test, for example, I think would be fun to do in the office. It's also known as the foraminal compression test, and it involves placing downward pressure directly on the patient's head. You have them angle their head towards the affected shoulder first, and then the axial load that you place on them should bring out pain or paresthesias if what's going on is referred pain from the spinal cord. So that makes sense and seems like a relatively practical exam maneuver, but let's try to go through the tests in the same order we went through the etiologies before. For subacromial impingement, the two tests to know are the Hawkins-Kennedy test and the NEAR test. Looking at pictures online will probably be the best way to understand these tests if you're not already familiar with them, but basically the Hawkins test involves having the patient's arm flexed and then medially rotating it. That should exacerbate impingement pain. The NEAR test is similar, but first the patient medially rotates the arm, then the examiner raises the arm up. So just remember, Hawkins and NEAR are the impingement tests. I think the most important tests for the supraspinatus are the painful arc and the drop arm tests, which are basically the same. The painful arc test involves the patient fully abducting, that's abducting the arm, then lowering it down, and pain in the 60 to 120 degree range is suggestive of supraspinatus pathology. The drop arm test is similar. The patient abducts to 90 degrees, then starts lowering the arm, and if they drop the arm down due to pain, the test is positive. Other rotator cuff tests include the external rotation test, which is basically what it sounds like against resistance, and the external rotation lag test, which is a little more interesting. For that one, you externally rotate the arm and ask the patient to maintain that position. And if they can't, if the arm goes drifting back towards the midline against their will, then that test is positive. There's a similar lag test for internal rotation as well, the internal rotation lag test, also called the liftoff test, because it involves the patient putting their arm behind their back, like they're resting their dorsal hand on their sacrum, and then lifting the arm from the body, and asking the patient to maintain that position. If they cannot keep the arm lifted back there, if it goes drifting back towards the body, then the test is positive and it suggests subscapularis pathology. If you have trouble remembering which tests correspond with which muscles, it may be worth spending a minute or two looking at the insertion sites of each tendon. Because if you look at some pictures, you can work out how it makes sense that the supraspinatus would be involved in lifting the arm laterally, so it corresponds with the painful arc and drop arm tests, while the subscapularis does internal rotation, and so corresponds with the internal rotation lag test. And then both the teres minor and infraspinatus seem well positioned to help with external rotation, and so can contribute to a positive external rotation test or external rotation lag test. Anyway, I think that's more than I ever wanted to know about the rotator cuff. 
I'll quickly breeze through a few more relatively memorable physical exam maneuvers and then let you go. For the AC or acromioclavicular joint, the maneuver to know, of course, involves reaching across the body and is appropriately named the crossed body adduction test. That's adduction. For biceps tendinopathy, there are two tests to know, the speed or speeds test, I've seen it both possessive and non, as well as the Jurgensen's or resisted supination test, which is what it sounds like. The speeds test involves the patient's affected arm extended in mild flexion, and then the examiner resists while the patient attempts further flexion. If this elicits pain in the bicipital groove, the test is positive. For the Jurgensen's test, you can have their arm flexed to 90 degrees or so, then take their hand as if in a handshake, and resist their attempt to supinate the hand, which means to twist it palm upwards. Resisting that motion should elicit pain in the bicipital groove in the setting of biceps tendinopathy. I should mention that none of these tests are 100% sensitive and specific, of course. They're usually somewhere in the 50 or 60 or maybe 80% range. But taken together with the history and risk factors, they can definitely help guide you towards a diagnosis. Okay, I think I've hit the high points here, so I'm going to wrap this episode up. If you're still thirsting for more shoulder physical exam maneuvers, you can look up the apprehension relocation test, which is a pretty good one. The treatment for a lot of these injuries is rest, NSAIDs, icing the injury, physical therapy. Some benefit from steroid injections, others do not. Subacromial bursa injections with 40 milligrams of triamcinolone and a couple cc's of lidocaine are fun to do, break up the routine in clinic, and often result in substantial, immediate relief of pain in the setting of subacromial bursitis or supraspinatus tendinitis. So patients will be very grateful for that. But we should generally hold off on injections until there's been a good old-fashioned trial of rest, ice, NSAIDs, etc. Okay, and lastly, please do realize that while most of these shoulder injuries don't require immediate surgical evaluation, a complete rotator cuff tear does, because if left untreated, you can get tendon retraction, fatty degeneration of the muscle, and premature glenohumeral arthritis. So that may be the most important bifurcation point clinically. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, please feel free to email me with questions or concerns or comments or feedback at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.